0: Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing, what's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter Spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at Ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com and you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference, attendees say, is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursdays. You get the same amount of mouthwash just spread over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of our times and changing really the world we work in, which I think this season for mouthwash, the real world of work. This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season, from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink, to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, uh, behavioral psychologists like Rory Tonight, and TikTok superstars. Uh, Check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash over at mouthwashshow.com, that's mouthwashshow.com, and I'm really proud to say that we are sponsored again this season, this time by the smart folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to work, to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their favorite and familiar features help everyone work together in new ways. So to play, make your place of work a great place to work, just visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very cool indeed. Nice bit of tech and uh, interesting to use, certainly in these times. As I mentioned um, in the pre uh, low fire haze that we were all in, I- Ecology are back, and we plant a tree for every single live listener in the TBD forest. We've got over 1,500 trees at the moment, so we're going strong. But if you're looking to reduce your all your business's carbon footprint, they're amazing. Head over to ecology.com start planting your own forest today. That's ecology.com or ecolog com. Uh, now's a good time to share the space when you're in the room. Click the round blue plus button in the bottom right hand side of your screen and tell the world you found something good. Everyone you get into the space means another tree in the world and I think you'll agree there's no bad thing right now. Uh, joining me tonight uh, from London is Rory Sutherland, advertising living legend, Ogilvy vice president chairman and a world renowned behavioural economist. Rory founded Ogilvy Change, behavioural science is his field and he works with a range of psychology degree uh, graduates uh, to look for unseen opportunities in consumer behaviour. He tries to solve problems that brands and businesses didn't know they had. Previously copywriter and creative director at Ogilvy for two decades, joining as a graduate trainee. He's definitely seen some things. Um, He's an author. He's a Cannes Lion judge, president of the IPA. He's been on the Ted Main stage uh, and a columnist for The Spectator. Rory is constantly pushing buttons and making others push buttons for clients and good causes. Welcome to Mouthwash, Rory. Did I miss anything?
1: Uh, no, I know. I didn't realise I'd done all that, but I suppose I have. Yeah, I don't know how I managed to fit it in.
0: Uh, exactly, exactly. And a strapping forty-year-old, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. um, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up today?
1: Uh, generally, uh, oh my god, because I had a um, a video call to about one hundred and fifty people in Asia, and my daughter had helpfully cleared away all the equipment from the desk because she wanted it for another purpose. So basically it was, how the hell do I reassemble all these microphones, webcams, and God knows what else? It wasn't a great way to wake up, to be absolutely honest.
0: (laughs) But did you manage it?
1: Yes. Yes i'm oh, quite go. good i'm actually quite good at rigging together i mean i've had two years practice but it's I i don't know if you know that scene from the day of the jackal where the chap effectively assembles the gun from his crutches you know um but i've got quite good at effectively rigging up video conferencing equipment in the strangest of places i'm doing this actually i've got a kind of shaw mv88 microphone perched on top of a mobile phone on a stand um I have to say, I I rather like video, it's a bit nerdy and sad, isn't it? It's a bit like saying in 1988, you're really keen on photocopiers. But I really quite like video conferencing kit. And I'm looking forward to quite a lot of overdue innovation in video conferencing hardware, actually.
0: Oh, definitely. I think there's a lot of people hoping for that soon. Um, lots of the software has been sort of increasing over the last two years. I, I know mm-hmm is doing incredibly well. Uh, I'm a big fan of using theirs and sort of virtual backgrounds. Um, I think you've sort of some, somewhat answered it. It sounds like you're a bit of a re- remote working bod. Is that sort of your office? Uh, I moment?
1: always I always was in a way in the sense that um I I, I think, it's first first of all, it's worth noting that before we become enthusiasts for remote and flexible working, we ought to spare a little bit of time to be highly critical of the Open Plan Office.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And my quibble with the Open Plan Office is, first of all, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary, it was sold on the benefits of collaboration and teamwork when it was really a money-saving exercise from the get-go. But my other problem with it isn't just that it's bad but it provides no scope for variety. And generally I think writers, creative people, anybody who, um, I I don't know if you know that very famous Paul Graham. It's a one page of a four piece called maker schedule versus manager schedule.
0: Oh, God, this is great.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful. And it's, it's a single page of A4 where he makes the point that managers tend to work to a time frame of you cram as many things into your diary as you possibly can. And you flip from one thing to the other very quickly. And that, therefore, provides you with a sense of accomplishment. But there are large numbers of jobs, i.e. Any, you know, anything, I think, remotely original um, uh, anything that requires sort of deep concentration, writing, for instance, where it's not a question of the time you have available. It's the, it's a question of having long swathes of uninterrupted time. And I think he quotes Dickens at the top of the article where Dickens points out that a single engagement can basically fuck up a whole afternoon. Okay, I, Obviously, Dickens doesn't use precisely those words. But the point being that if you're in a kind of maker schedule, not a manager schedule... Um, The reason you get irritated if someone puts a 15-minute meeting in the middle of the afternoon is that isn't a loss of 15 minutes, that's a loss of a whole afternoon. Yeah. And David Ogilvy, interestingly, when we first went into lockdown and everybody was going on about how on earth are we going to do this, I made the point that David Ogilvy very forthrightly said in one of his books, I never write anything in the office, too many distractions. So whether it was advertising, body copy, headlines, or books or speeches, to write anything of that kind, David Ogilvy always went home.
0: Yeah, I think it's difficult in general, focusing in the office because there's notifications, there's meetings, there's pings going off on every single other people's um, devices. One thing I talked to uh, Tim Leeson earlier in the survey um, series, uh, he works for Leeson Index, which is a big, you know, database of data about how the world of work is actually working, the, the, the real world. And Mm. we talked about productivity and I said to him, um, everybody seems to feel like they're productive. And 63% of people say that they are more productive when they work at home, but actually no one's been able to prove it. No one's been able to say, actually, yeah, our work put is 63% better than it was when you are in the office. And so there's still that sort of myth around that productivity. People may feel better. They may even produce better work, but no one's been able to seriously prove it at the moment. Um, Have you ever seen or have you got any thoughts around that? It's very difficult to... um
1: disentangle productivity from merely feas- feeling busy. And I do think that in anything where you've got a, for example, if you have to write 500 or 1,000 words of reasonable quality prose, uh, what is very noticeable is you'll have moments where you are super productive, where the words more or less go straight from brain to page or brain to dictaphone. And I'll come on to that a bit later, perhaps. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, voice transcription. Um, And there are other moments where you basically spend three hours dicking around with an opening paragraph. And John Cleese, in his book, um, Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide, makes the point that uh, this variance in output is effectively unavoidable. It's just a quality of doing anything worthwhile, that you will be slow for certain moments, certain moments will be entirely wasted, other moments will be unbelievably fruitful, and you simply have to come to accept it. Mm. That actually, uh, if you like, um, judging... For example, when I wrote a, a couple of books, judging writing output by kind of tailorist measures doesn't do the job. You know, the idea that output is proportionate to time spent is absolutely not true. Fun enough, I'm a huge fan not only of flexible working, I'm a massive fan of working on trains, that there are certain places uh, where you can just find yourself being spectacularly useful and productive for reasons I don't fully understand.
0: Is that your flow statement? When you're I've always train?
1: yeah, I've always wondered what it'd be like. I've never been on a cruise ship. I've always wondered what it'd be like to try and, and maybe I'll do that when I'm a bit older, that if I've got to write another book, I'll just go and book myself onto the uh uh, you know, the Achille Lauro or something for some three week tour around the Mediterranean and see whether it works or not. <laughs> um, but but I I do find trains are quite good and flights can be very good for a flow state. Uh, they can be completely the opposite. But I, I, it always intrigues me this because this idea effectively of tra- you know of trying to make a creative process uh, kind of efficient and what you might call a- a effectively delineating in advance how it will actually pan out strikes me as just fundamentally mistaken. It doesn't work like that. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, people always want to pretend that it can. Um, I didn't think, I didn't think in a way, I think part of the creative process is no process
0: let's that, talk about that, um sorry finish off. that you have to you have to free
1: yourself from the idea that there is absolutely a fail-safe technique and accept the fact that actually the way john cleese puts it is it nobody when they eat food thinks god this is only 50 percent efficient because half the time i'm moving the fork away from my mouth And if you're producing anything of worthwhile imagination or originality, it's no good to think that the dicking around on Wikipedia or the distraction or the wandering off and making yourself a cup of tea is actually detracting from the process. It's probably part of the process, to be honest.
0: Mm. Um, You mentioned when you first started out uh, that there were some people who were not sure about how it was all going to work over at Ogilvy. How do you think... um, Uh, what do you call it Ogilvy's pandemic response was when it was handling the pandemic what did it do specifically Uh,
1: there were people who had to go into the office because they were working specifically on pandemic work for for example Nightingale hospitals and um, uh, so a small body of people sort of skeleton staff would go into a very distant office everybody else was pretty much completely remote Um, weirdly my own team had had strange practice in it Um, I don't think this was precincts on my part. It's partly because I I live slightly outside London and I'm a bit lazy. But I was quite keen. I was always quite keen on working from home on a Friday. Um, And partly just because if you commute, I don't know if you found the same thing, but if you commute, four days is kind of okay, but the fifth day is really a grind. Yeah. And so I was experimenting back in 2018, 2019 with remote work with the team. Because I thought we would actually be more, okay, I didn't know what the correct ratio was of co-located work and remote or flexible work, but I was fairly confident it wasn't 100 nil. Okay, I would also make the argument what was the point in some ways of inventing all these extraordinary location-free technologies like the internet, like video conferencing, like what we're doing now. Okay, what's the point of doing, of inventing all those things, if we don't use it to slightly change our actual physical behavior? you know it seemed you've got to remember of course i'm quite old i'm 56. so when i started work in 1988 you had to go into the office because the office was where the technology was it wasn't just a question of the people um in the basement we had a photocopy of the size of a car your computer if you had one and a lot of people didn't by the way wasn't portable it was on a desk all your phone calls came into the office All your faxes a lot of people probably don't know what those are but all your faxes which was the main mode of of written communication between businesses all your faxes turned up at the office you had to send faxes from the office um and actually um come to think of it you couldn't really except in extremists make phone make say international phone calls from home because there was no itemized billing and you'd end up you know spending 15 20 quid And so you went into the office as much for the technology as for the people. And bit by bit, all of those requirements, all of those technological requirements to move into the office had basically gone. In fact, we'd reached a point where I think most people have better technology at home than they do at work. You know, I'm sitting here next to a 55-inch 4K monitor. Uh, My broadband connection at home is better for video conferencing than the one at work, even though we've got some sort of massive T1 line. uh, It seems more glitchy than actually my home broadband. Um, (laughs) And, you know, you'll notice this, that actually in many cases, consumer tech overtakes business tech. You know we we had hdmi connections at home or at least scart connections at home while back in the office people were still connecting laptops to monitors by screwing in those funny little vg what were they called vga connectors i think
0: weren't they yeah i think so
1: okay now the vga connector never made an appearance in the home you know but crappy sort of slightly outdated things like that weirdly persisted in offices um uh, long after the home had moved on to hdmi and so it kind of interested me, I thought, well, given, given that all these technologies now are just as present in the home um, as they are in the workplace, you know, I can't think of a technological reason I'd ever go into the office, to be honest, unless I needed to do something highly specific or sort of professional level filming or something of that kind.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, um, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people feel like that—that that they have now what they need at home. It might not be mm. the best, it might not be the only, but it certainly does the job. And I think increased—it was interesting speaking with um, Leeson that they said uh, over a third of people don't still, after two years, don't have a proper work chair. And so you've got all of these sort of opportunities for people to make quite a big difference in their co-workers' lives or workers' lives, and yet it's still not being done. No, no, I
1: mean, I I was pointing out the slight absurdity that actually it was easier at Ogilvy to get approval for a business class return to New York than it was to get approval for a webcam. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, You know, I, I, I think BYOD will increasingly be... Uh, you know, I would like to see an arrangement where actually staff are given a certain amount of money to spend effectively tax-free, at the very least. God, yes. It, it, would, seem, it would seem a tax-efficient way to reward people, apart from anything else, to spend on their own home tech. Um, there's some very interesting tech, by the way. I'm, I, I know it's not fashionable to big up um, Facebook, or meta, but, for example, the Facebook portal um, TV which is a kind of intelligent AI-powered webcam that attaches to your television. It's great. And I bought my actually, fought, one. you you bought your parents one. It's utterly yeah, fantastic it. piece of tech. Yeah, and effectively, brilliant. you have a kind of pretty much HD quality conversation on your home telly. Um, uh with 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 your parents you know so many hundreds or thousands of miles away and uh, what was it slightly annoying about i did feel a bit it's not often someone says i felt a bit sorry for meta but where i felt a bit sorry for them is they brought out this extraordinary bit of equipment which by the way it's 149 pounds standardly if you go and buy it on amazon but if you wait for a kind of sale you can probably get it for 99 and i'd argue it's about 400 quids worth of tech for 99 pounds okay in terms of its quality and the sophistication of the way it pans around the room so you can actually sort of present and talk standing up or sitting in an armchair and it will zoom in on you um and it's really is a, a fantastic but every single review spent 11 paragraphs burbling on about the privacy implications okay and then one paragraph saying it was really an amazingly good webcam now I realise there are privacy implications in allowing Facebook to put a video in your home, but A, you can turn it off at the mains, which you can't You can't really turn off a mobile phone, but you can turn off this device. And B, I figured that if Mark Zuckerberg wanted to spy on people, he'd probably have more attractive people to look at than a sort of 56-year-old fat advertising man walking around in his underpants going, where have you put the sodding remote? You know, I, I imagine that there were other people he'd probably spy on first. So I wasn't particularly alarmed by that privacy aspect of the of the portal but it is a wonderful bit of i've also got a a sony zv1 which i use as a webcam as well as as a camera so i, I plug that in as a webcam and i think that makes a difference and uh, what have i got i've got a road microphone thing but but I, I think it makes a difference doing it reasonably well. And as a, a wonderful guy who's actually the CEO of Flexport called uh, Ryan Peterson, he said that the your webcam setup is the two thousand dollar Italian suit of the twenty twenties. You know the business status symbol will ultimately be how cool your webcam setup is.
0: Oh, God, yeah. You can only imagine, can't you? People are, you know, very excited about that. It was the bookcase, and now it is sort of like how people can see you on the screen. It's, it's oh, bizarre.
1: absolutely. You know, I mean, on the question of productivity, very interesting couple of questions, which is, it is really, really easy to think you're being productive when you're merely being busy. Um, and it's also, you know, particularly in creative work, it isn't really easy to what you might call measure productivity or value creation on a kind of hour by hour basis, as you would do with piecework or manufacturing or something of that kind. Um, Two two areas I think which always fascinated me. I noticed particularly experimenting before and after lockdown that voice dictation is incredibly efficient compared to typing, that you can speak something like eight times faster than you can type. And therefore, if you've got 2,000 or 10,000 words to write, it's better off to talk it, record it, and then upload it to something like otter.ai, and then use the time you've saved editing. That produces better text, actually, than typing everything uh, de novo. Um, so it, it, it struck me as very interesting, because we feel productive when we're typing fast, because we're not we're comparing it to slow typing. We're not comparing it to the speed of speech. That's one thing. The other thing I don't think we notice enough, and this is something that really interests me, is network effects. So the advertising business has historically always been a kind of handshaking business where you have one client at a time and you solve one problem at a time and it's solve once, sell once. And I've always thought there's potential to do a kind of broadcast model of an ad agency, which is solve once, sell many times. So what I'm doing now, I don't know how many people on this call, it's about 100, is it, or something? How many people you got on? Okay.
0: Yeah, about 100, I think.
1: About 100. Now, someone might very easily say, why are you talking on this strange thing, the future of work? My argument is, look, if I spend an hour talking to 100 people, it's a lot more efficient than spending 100 hours talking to one person at a time. And it always strikes me as strange that nobody seems to notice that and we sort of noticed it when nudge stock had to go online uh, in 2020 and we ended up with an audience of about 100,000 people and um, suddenly we went hold on a second we've been doing this event and it's had an audience of 400 then it expanded and we got up to about 550 560 600 we, we were always full we were always sold out we were always pretty happy and then when we had 100,000 we said shit that wouldn't fit in Wembley stadium OK, we suddenly compared it to sort of football stadia sizes and said, actually, in a weird kind of way, what's really inefficient is talking to people one at a time. And yet most advertising activity is doing exactly that. Yeah. You know, I'm a I'm massive, you know, if you look at what Mark Ritson's done, for example, with his mini MBA, um, that business of, uh, you know, effectively uh, you know, producing things which can be consumed on demand at any time and which can be enjoyed simultaneously by a large number of people. Um, it's simply a much better way to get your message
0: across. Mm. Rory, you've glanced over what Nudge Stock is. It's coming back on June the 10th. But for those who haven't been, can you describe what it is and what to expect this year? Yes.
1: It's a, it's a day-long, actually, probably it is actually the world's largest festival of behavioural science. It started exactly 10 years ago. Um, the first one was tacked on to a conference in London um, on um, in Shoreditch. And then the second one was in Deal. I think the third one might have been in Deal. Then we moved to Folkestone for a time. And um, effectively, it's a worldwide online streamed uh, roughly sort of 8 to 10 hours of interviews films some pre-recorded some live uh we like to do everything live but pre-recording both often allows you to get speakers who otherwise aren't free on the day and also actually maintains the sanity of the team producing the show to be absolutely honest you know being able to press it's a bit like a dj going and here is backman turner overdrive and you know the djs putting on the bloody um, album and you know going off to have a smoke or a piss or make a cup of coffee and actually <laughs> uh, you know, in the same way, it's quite nice to have a few pre-recorded segments.
0: I um, agree doing TBD. Ju- just just
1: uh, exactly doing TBD. You, under- you understand that exactly. And um, uh, so but um, it, it, it's called Nudge Stock as an homage, if you like, to the book by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, uh, both of whom have spoken at Nudge Stock, unsurprisingly, uh, their book Nudge, which was the book in many ways, although there are there are several others. There's Robert Cialdini, there's, for example, um, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. And you can actually you can actually go all the way back to the eighteenth century, or Aesop was probably the first behavioral economist, to be absolutely honest. If you read Aesop's fables, uh, you know, Dog in the Manger, Sour Grapes, uh, effectively what Aesop was was a behavioral economist avant la lettre in what was about five hundred BC or something. He's bloody old. But but he goes back a long way. But I mean nud Effectively kicked into the mainstream discussion of psychological and design solutions to problems which were typically handed automatically to engineers or economists.
0: And the tickets are free this year, is that right? I'm
1: pretty sure, yes. I, I hope we make some money out of merch. And yeah. there are some very generous sponsors too. Definitely. I won't list them because I might miss one or two of them out, but we're also <laughs> generously sponsored. And um, uh, it's something we do which we find. I think, ultimately, what we ought to do is monetize it by having a kind of nudge stock privé, where we have smaller, very focused events, often, I think, around, I think there's scope for nudge stocks around specific category problems. You know, you oh, could yeah. have a nudge stock around electric cars, or you could have a nudge stock around vaccine hesitancy. Uh, you could have a nudge stock around, you know, adherence to medication.
0: Mm. oh definitely
1: it does worry me that advertising agencies of course because most of the money is at the brand level advertising agencies have become very very specialized on solving brand problems with brand communications when in fact uh, quite a lot of the problems out there that present the potential for really creative and innovative solutions are actually problems at the level of the category um i i noticed something that bothers me actually about electric cars having just bought an electric car myself Um, uh, all the attention is focused on range anxiety and the different brands all compete by boasting about what spectacular range they offer which almost has the collective effect of publicizing the what is about the only negative of an electric car versus an internal combustion engine car which is that it you know uh, it takes slightly longer to fill up the tank, as it were, with electrons than it does to fill up the tank with petrol, and that the range generally of a full tank of electrons is rather less than that of particularly a diesel car, Okay. Now, what interests me about that, which I I think is a problem, is that I think range anxiety in electric cars is highly relevant if you live in the United States or Canada. Yeah. Okay, it's probably pretty relevant if you live in Australia. Particularly relevant, by the way, in the US, because as well as having enormous distances, it's in some parts of the US for much of the year it's very, very cold, and the the range and the capacity to charge gets severely impeded if it's if you have kind of uh, significant sub zero temperatures. But as I would argue, in Britain, actually, in at least in a year and a half's time, um. And if you have the facility to charge at home even even more so, I mean already, okay, range anxiety is ninety nine point five percent irrelevant in the u k and if you live in the north of Scotland or mid wales i'll 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 give you a buy on that one fair enough, okay. but someone living in say the southeast of england uh, rapid finding a rapid charging station is is not going to be a problem for uh, more than a well six months to a year really. Mm. I I, I, I actually did the maths on this and I investigated it and I realised in the UK we have 8,500 petrol stations, okay? In the United States they have 116,000 petrol stations. Now obviously they've got a bigger population but most of those extra stations are actually serving a geography, they're not serving a population.
0: Yeah.
1: And so, and there are a whole bunch of other reasons by the way, you know, I mean, if you look at it, okay, um, uh, very simply, we've got, 240 volt 230 volts at home they've only got 110 so if you go and visit your granny and have to plug in on her outside plug actually that'll do a perfectly good overnight job of you know adding 80 miles 100 miles to an electric car 110 volts total waste of time you know um and so there are there are about I, I made a list of about 10 differences why actually you know including very few extremes of climate Um, uh, The fact that we have 240 volts, even on a basic electrical power supply, uh, the fact that actually, you know, we're highly densely populated. And so generally, where you charge, you can find a place to charge where there's something else to do. Yeah. You know, there's a big difference between wandering around a Cotswold town for half an hour while your car charges and being stuck in a Nebraska truck stop, you know, in sub zero temperatures, having just heard that a serial killer's escaped from the local federal detention facility. You know, there there are you know, there are there are elements I mean, the other point is we've got trains, right? I wouldn't drive to Manchester I live in Kent, I wouldn't drive to Manchester for the day or even for one night. You know, I'd drive to Manchester if I was gonna be there for four four nights or something no doubt about it useful to have the car while you're there i wouldn't drive to manchester for a day or for a night now in america you have those journeys where your parents live 400 miles away you know it's impossible to fly there's no train service you yeah. know those kind of daily return journeys of 600 miles actually happen in the u.s whereas in the uk well when you go on holiday maybe you know it's pretty rare
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, part and parcel of the the whole, like, great commute uh, changing that people are doing. I think EV cars is definitely coming in for a number of reasons, not just, you know, pandemic and it's good for green, but more uh, economical and also being forced politically to do it. But let me drive you to the office, as they say. Um, Of course. The New York Times had a pretty hard hitting uh, piece recently about grief and trauma at work. Seamless, uh, seamless. uh, segue um a lot of people are heading back to the office who are dealing with unresolved massive issues and ongoing issues um how do you think businesses should use behavioral economics to handle this
1: i think it's it's absolutely vital and this is you know one of the great lessons this is what marketers what makes marketers in general including i hope behavioral scientists distinct from business people which is um averages are not the marketer's friend if you're reporting financial information upwards okay with a sort of shareholder value mindset then those people just care about the average because they just care about how much money you're making they don't care about who you're making it from okay the marketer i think averages and aggregates are dangerously distracting so one of the things we've got to do is simply become much better, first of all, at offering people choice. Uh, you know, one of the things it's worth noting about is it's not as if the open plan office catered for everybody equally. You know, I imagine if you're an extreme introvert, you found the open op- plan office painful. Actually, the open plan office was also a bit painful if you're an extrovert, because you couldn't make that much noise without disturbing or annoying the introvert nearby. And I've often said the future of the office should be half pub, half library. You know, it should be two extremes rather than one midpoint. And it's a classic example, I think, the, the, the open plan office of solving for the average. And actually, it's neither um, it's neither fish nor fowl or flesh nor fowl. I can never remember which one which one that phrase is. You know, it's kind of it's kind of like a nowhere space between being sociable and being um, secluded. I don't, I don't, it, I don't think it works thing. now, but but equally in terms of mental health, I mean, it's worth noting that the the reaction first of all, people's circumstances are highly, regardless of people's psychology. People's circumstances are massively different. Okay, if you have young children, uh, you know, if you have you know no space, if you're if, if you're in a flat share with a lunatic, right? Being confined to barracks is a very very different proposition to mm. sitting in timbered country houses or whatever. But also, temperamentally, people respond very differently. A very large number of people, there was a survey by a Dutch employment company where they asked the question, what do you miss about the office? And 53 percent of people said nothing. <laughs> OK, you know there was yeah. a list with camaraderie, bonhomie, you know, joshery, you know, all those sort of things. And um, there was a list with, you know, water cooler moments, chats, sociability, etc. And those people read all the way through the list and ticked the box at the bottom saying nothing now i don't think that's quite true by the way and i I will i will share with all your listeners a bit of advice from paul dolan who is the behavioral economics guru at the london school of economics whose advice i think is very good which is you should probably go into the office one day more than you would if you were left to your own devices that we're not very good hedonic forecasters okay we tend to default to the option which is easiest up front and actually hauling ass and forcing yourself to go into the office one day more than you would do if you were simply allowing yourself to drift is probably a good use of discretionary effort and you'll probably end up enjoying the day you went in rather more than you expected OK, but on the other hand, as I said, we do, I don't know still what the right ratio is, but I know the ratio, the right ratio is not 100 zero, which is why back in 2018 with my team, it was very interesting because I said, "Well, oh, by the way, you can all work from home if you like on a Friday. And nobody did. OK, I realized they were seeing working from home as a concession, as a perk, and they were almost saving it up. You know, uh, you know, I'll save it up. I don't want to burn my brownie points by taking advantage of this remote working too quickly. So I won't take advantage of it. It was only when I said, no, no, you don't quite understand. I would actually prefer you to work from home because I want to see how it works. And very quickly, by the way, when we got quite good at using Zoom, we discovered something quite valuable, which is we started winning quite a lot of overseas business. Yeah. Because previously, you see, in the previous world, effectively it was just assumed that before you would engage in any kind of financial exchange of any depth and complexity that you had to co-locate which meant that if you had a say a 10 percent prospect of a hundred thousand pounds worth of business well it wasn't really worth booking two long-haul flights and staying in a hotel because statistically it didn't pay whereas is it worth spending two hours on zoom for a 10 percent chance of that money well pretty much every day of the week and so, you know, a lot of things did become much more efficient. And I think there's another thing, which is there are a lot of people, in whom I'll include myself, who can be quite valuable if you bring us into a problem for an hour. And we'd be pretty good for half a day or even a day, but you wouldn't want us on the thing for a week because we'd start setting things on fire or generally messing up. <laughs> and so the the, the, the freedom of of, um, of of, for example, video calling to bring in expertise or alternative viewpoints or just a diverse viewpoint, not necessarily permanently, but for short, intense bursts without the general travel costs and commitments and bother that previously accompanied that kind of thing, seems to be quite important, in fact.
0: Mm let's talk about um people for a bit um very important part of businesses but increasingly we're starting to see frustrations of old become either new ones or people are just leaving the great resignation or acceleration as, as a lot of people are calling it causing a lot actually, of issues i
1: keep reading conflicting things one person says it's not the great resignation it's the great reassessment then someone <laughs> yeah. says well actually there aren't that many people leaving and then you talk to someone in austin who says we're absolutely flooded with people moving out from san francisco keep getting conflicting information of course it's different in the US than the UK Mm -hmm. uh, for reasons funnily I've stated before you know most of the southern half of England practically stretching as far as Yorkshire certainly you know if you decided to move out there you could you could travel into London for for a day at a time without it being particularly burdensome now it's a slightly different order of problem when someone moves from San Francisco to Austin when they're actually a flight away you know, I can see that being an issue. I have heard wonderful stories of people recruiting software staff, and the software staff they're employing refuse to reveal where they live.
0: <laughs> and well, it's the reason a they're... lot of people have moved, haven't they? they, well, they well, the argument dumps, the argument was in
1: part, which is if you knew where I lived, you'd use it to negotiate my pay down.
0: Exactly. So
1: assume I'm living in San Francisco in a lousy apartment that costs, you know, three thousand dollars a month, okay? or $4,000 a month, when in reality, I'm living in some extraordinary, you know, tropical island, where my living costs are negligible. But the people actually said, Yeah, you can hire me, but I'm not going to tell you where I live.
0: So that brings me on to a good question. All right. So there is a reality with businesses that they're there to make money for stakeholders, right? They also have a duty. of I don't
1: buy that. I, I do not oh, buy okay. the shareholder. I don't buy the shareholder value movement. I think it's, um, it's a Milton Friedman nonsense.
0: Okay, um, so what business uh, which is which is per.
1: Well, I, I I think a an intelligent business that wants to endure exists to triangulate and complementarily um, meet the expectations, hopes, and desires of its customers, its employees, and its stakeholders. I don't think the stakeholder has has any particular prior claim on the value created by a business. I don't accept that. Now what's weird to me is most of my younger staff are kind of much more left wing than me in certain areas, but they buy into the shareholder value. It's, it's incoherent by the way, which shareholder, by the way, do you mean an algorithm that's holding the stock for three minutes or do you mean a, you know, a, a shareholder who's planning to retire on the stock in 10 years time? What time frame do you apply when effectively directing activity to the the value of the shareholder Um, you might argue also that you know the amount of risk at stake for an employee an employee might stake their entire life's career on a business whereas the shareholder is merely dabbling uh, in the business for three or four days Mm. I I, I don't accept I just don't accept it It, it's um, nor does John Kay the economist Uh, he thinks partly It's just sort of, you know, and it also leads to, I think, a ridiculous overestimation of the importance of senior management, by the way, who are the people who report to those stakeholders. And Mm -hmm. I think it focuses it focuses the mindset. Um, to, to quote, actually, funnily enough, someone who very quickly said that they thought the shareholder value movement was rubbish, having first espoused it, which was Jack Welsh of GE. He said, you know, you end up with a typical organization which has its face towards the chief executive and its ass towards the customer. And um, uh, it's, it, it, I, think, I think it's an extraordinary and um, uh, um, pervasive belief that businesses exist I mean, I'm not. Enti- I hate to be rude about this, but okay. I'm sure the WPP shareholders are great and all that, but I'm not entirely clear what they do, right? Mm. Because because this isn't a capital-intensive business, is it? I mean, I could start an ad agency with a credit card and a branch of PC World, right? Yep, a hundred percent. Okay, it's not like I need this massive upfront investment before I can practice as an advertising practitioner. I'm not building an aluminium smelting works, right? So I'm not entirely. <laughs> Yeah, Okay. I mean, you know, um, I'm not entirely clear what the value is that these people provide, because what they seem to do is make people who used to work at Ogilvy a lot richer than the people who currently work at Ogilvy. (laughs) So if anybody, if anybody, by the way, can explain this to me, I mean, I'd love to know, because don't get me wrong. You know, I've got no animus towards them, but I don't think they deserve particular prior claim on my attention compared to our clients who actually give us money. Okay. No.
0: I like that. I hope well, very difficult, I'm sure, to get yourself fired, but
1: John Kay's objection, by the way, is that actually directly pursuing shareholder value tends not to create it. John oh, Kay's like argument is a bit more subtle, which is that the best way to pursue a goal is to pursue it obliquely. And the businesses that seek to be great businesses tend to produce more value for their shareholders than the businesses that seek to be valuable to their shareholders.
0: Let me rephrase the question because I want to I want to get your thoughts on it. And that's of thing. Um, so let's just say, how do we get the balance between and I really dislike the term intensely human capital and profit. Correct. If that makes sense.
1: Um, well, I think it's going to have to be a fairly major um, uh, reassessment here because we've spent the last 25, 30 years. And it's partly because I'm 56. I can actually remember back in the late 80s when staff, when businesses actually worried about securing talent and they worried about churn, okay? And if you think about it, um, in the relationship between labor and capital, I grew up in the 1970s where you might argue that labor actually uh, lauded it with, with huge union power. Labor kind of lauded it over capital and certainly over customers to a completely unacceptable extent, okay? I wouldn't dispute that for a second, okay? But at the same time, we've had, if you think about it, um, ordinary what you might call the middle class in developed countries. Globalisation has benefited the very poor worldwide quite significantly, I think. Okay, It also seems to have benefited the very rich rather significantly. But people who are kind of middle to low income in developed economies have disproportionately been hit by probably three things, which is offshoring, um, in some cases, freedom of movement or immigration, okay? Uh, um, and the third thing is automation. And so there have been three things that have served to effectively keep pressure down on wages. Um Now, I, I make an additional point, which is that freedom of movement within the Europea- European Union, I voted Remain, okay? But freedom of, of movement within the European Union was very asymmetrical. Because we're an English-speaking country, there are probably 100,000 young people, educated young people in continental Europe, who speak English well enough to come over here and do a job, okay? If I moved to Poland, I'd be sweeping the streets, right? Mm -hmm. Because I don't speak Polish well enough to run an ad agency in Poland, unless it was some massive international thing, okay? Right? And actually, Mm -hmm. what happened is, for the last 20 or 25 years, I I think employers have taken employees for granted. And what we see now is a case where, to some extent, the Great Resignation is a kind of office workers' union informal, tacit, unspoken unionisation, which is to say, we're not necessarily going to negotiate for wages, although with inflation that may change, okay? We're not necessarily going to negotiate for wage rises, but I don't think it's unreasonable for people to say, if I believe, and you can't just prove otherwise, that I can be as productive and as valuable um, at leading a pleasanter lifestyle than the one I previously was forced to lead. If I can generate the same value but can actually enjoy a slightly better quality of life, or lower non-discretionary costs in terms of commuting costs and um, uh, uh, and housing costs, okay? Now, in a way, that's pure Adam Smith, right? Because the the genius of capitalism is that you find more and more effective forms of exchange of value. Okay? I mean, effectively, economics capitalism is the discovery of um, better and better forms of voluntary value exchange between parties. And those parties might be your clients. They might be your staff. They might be your stakeholders. They might be your managers. Now, I think what people realise during the pandemic, and I always call this, is that standard labour economics assumes that all you do is you exchange t- leisure time for pay, okay? Yeah. And so their model of of work in, you know, banal economic models is effectively, you, you know, you sacrifice a certain amount of leisure, which has a value to you, and your the reason your pay is called compensation is because it compensates you for the loss of free time. But what people may have discovered in the pandemic is that they don't necessarily want more free time. They don't necessarily want more money, although that most people do at some level, okay? But what they also discovered they valued is free when and free where. Mm-hmm. And a, a colleague of mine, Brian Featherstone, who also adds uh, free who, which is if you work with people you choose to work with in a place you choose to work at a time of day which suits you, even if you're working the same hours as you were before in aggregate, that has a big value to you. Okay? Yeah. You know, if, and secondly, you might argue, I mean, one of the points I make is that whether or not you want your staff to work flexibly, most businesses would be much happier if their customers could work flexibly, because it would probably represent a significant after tax influx of discretionary money into the economy. I mean, if you look at most of our young staff, okay, after we pay them and after they've paid tax, 50% of that money disappears into the hands of either the buy-to-let landlord for accommodation or transport for London, okay? And I once asked asked Ogilvy, as a thought experiment, and I still haven't got an answer, by the way, how much do clients have to pay us for a member of staff to buy a curry, okay? So we get paid a certain amount, then some of the money goes to the shareholders. Uh, uh, as we have mentioned before, okay yep. then some of the money goes in overheads, costs, fixed costs, etc. Then you pay you know national insurance and this and then the other. then you pay the salary to the person. then they pay tax then they pay their landlord then they pay their transport for London you know travel cardy thing right? And then how much in order for enough to be left over for a takeaway curry, how much did the client have to give us up top? And if you actually start with an employee value movement rather than the shareholder value movement, I think you would have asked that question before. And our finance mm-hmm. people didn't know the answer to that question.
0: <laughs> Did I and, you know?
1: Well, the point I would make is if you can go and live um, uh, less expensively, I mean, some people, you know, have you know, some people live with their parents part of the time. For example, I've got one colleague who lives in Sheffield. We always joke that he's in some sort of, you know, Hefner mansion up there. I don't think I'm not quite sure he is. But um, <laughs> um, but but what what I'm saying is that if you don't have to spend as much money commuting, parking, there are also kind of ancillary expenses which are incurred just by dint of going to work. You know you know, those sort of Pret-a-Manger things, you know what I mean? Okay. Mm-hmm. If you can strip that out, that gives quite a large amount of discretionary money, uh, which previously was going into the hands of landlords of one shape or another. Um, It actually, if that puts it back in people's discretionary um, spending power, then those people have become richer at no cost to their employer. Yeah, They've become both financially richer and emotionally richer uh, by dint of leading a pleasanter life with slightly more discretionary money, while still producing the same value to their employer, or potentially more than they did before, it wouldn't. Surprise, it obviously depends on. By the way, a huge amount of this depends on the employee mentality. If yeah. you have a team who want to do good stuff. Who are genuinely self-motivated um i would be fairly confident you could see and let's face it no one it's, it's not like the pandemic no one's banning people from coming into the office there is a bit of a coordination problem which is if everybody comes in on different days you don't get the same camaraderie you would have had before maybe yeah. we've just got to take maybe we've just got to take some of the saving in terms of real estate cost and square footage and we've just got to spend it on booze instead Oh, you God.
0: Know? What is the connection between alcohol and work at the moment? It seems to be coming back. We sort of went away and we've either had alcohol problems at our own homes or people have decided not to drink. And I think it's quite interesting that a lot of businesses are sort of like, we miss having beers with people. I'm like, you can have a beer over a Zoom if you wanted to. Why do you have to be in the office? Uh, no, me, you can't. I, I never drink at home and I can't explain why I don't.
1: I just don't enjoy drinking. I I will occasionally have a glass of wine with a meal, Mm. but I genuinely don't drink at home, don't really enjoy it, don't want to do it. I can't explain why not. Um, And it, it shouldn't surprise us, by the way, that there's a certain amount of people making up for lost time. You know if london becomes a little bit dissolute and um you know bacchanalian over the next few years on wednesdays and thursdays i don't think we should be surprised mm-hmm. i mean there's a great book apollo's arrow by nicholas Christakis, which talks about what happened after the last pandemic the spanish flu pandemic and um uh it, it doesn't surprise me at all that some people are sort of making up for lost time or overcompensating a bit yeah. some people on the other hand are I think will be suffering from fairly major agoraphobia. Yeah. Uh, you made definitely. the point that there were people who had, you know, serious mental issues occasioned either by lockdown or at least what you might call uncovered by the experience of lockdown, whether the lockdown created the problem or merely brought it to the fore, yeah. you know, obviously will vary, but, um, uh, this is one thing it's incredibly, I think, uneven, uh, in its effects. And of course, we've got to remember that there are huge numbers of people who can't work from home that work requires yeah. their physical presence. That's that. However, I will make one caveat here. I don't want to be the kind of person who goes, "Ooh, white collar work. It's so difficult. Ooh, I'm so stressed because compared to some blue collar work, like scaffolding, okay, right? It's not very dangerous. You know, it's not very scary. It's not very tough, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, On the other hand, I will make a point here, which is if you let's say you're a typical sort of blue collar employee, okay, and you have a commitment, you might be a carer for an elderly parent or for a child, or you may have other time commitments of any kind, you can find blue collar employment. um, There are things obviously taxi driving is one obvious example. You know, if you work in retail or you work in hospitality, you can swap shifts with people. Right. Okay. It is fair to make that point that someone, once they had decided they were basically going into office work or knowledge work to use Peter Drucker's phrase, um, you basically said goodbye to any flexibility whatsoever.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so office work was, so my father used to get his car serviced, um, by a guy who had a double first in classics from Oxford. Okay. (laughs) The guy would come around to kind of check the timing. And I, my father said, you know, he said, you know, I eventually got to know him well enough to say, well, if you've got a double first a classics from Oxford, you know, wh- why are you replacing my fan belt? And the guy said, I tried office work. I couldn't stand it. You know, I tried sitting behind a desk. I just couldn't stand the whole thing. And um, it is worth noting that there was a homogeneity to both the time and collocation of office work, which, you know, if you hate that my, my my father always had the theory that the reason plumbers turn up late is because people who hate living to a schedule tend to become plumbers because they just like the feeling that you can kind of you around the place you know taxi drivers love the fact that you can i'm sorry about this i'll just get this phone and sort about because my children are too useless <laughs> i mean where are you
0: just while we're always doing
1: that, yes. Uh, um, just you can uh, get everyone the... share
0: the space out if that's good. Just hit the uh, the blue button on the bottom right. and oh, that would be great. More, more people, button. more well, What trains.
1: have you ordered? Or are you eating it there?
0: I will, for the sake of us all, mute Rory's mic. So uh, I'll let Rory know that he's um, muted. But yeah, please share the space out. Um, Rory is an absolute diamond. I've got a couple more questions for him. Then we'll do some Desert Island tweets and then we'll get back. But yeah, I put him on mute. uh, So hopefully he'll unmute himself and then we'll be back. But yeah, um, thank you all for joining the space. Obviously, we do these Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, We've got an amazing group of people for the rest of um, the season as well. So yeah, should be good. Rory, i put you on mute if you've come back. I'm not sure if you're still on the phone. Um, I am now back. Yeah, No, back. Yes, no, there back. We go. no worries. I, I did. I think I did a decent job of filling there. <laughs> well, well, well done. No, no, no. Um, but it is
1: It is worth noting that you could find, you know, if you wanted to become a, you know, secretly I always quite like to have been a lorry driver, I think. You know, although now you have that spy on the cab stuff, so you probably don't have the autonomy that you once yeah. did. But But once you basically say, I'm going into knowledge work, any kind of you know uh, uh, you know variance in terms of taste or, or cognitive style or whatever it may be, or you know uh, you know pretty much disappear to a point where I was talking to people in Scandinavia who made the point that they spend effectively for about five months of the year office work takes away five sevenths of their daylight. They go to work in the dark. They go home in the dark okay now you know the freedom actually to get up early do a load of work then do something quite pleasant for two hours in the middle of the day uh, one thing one thing that does suggest to me that greater productivity may be possible is i can't work i'm 56 i can't work funny enough, i just cancelled something after this engagement i can't work a 12 13 hour day at a stretch okay but i can do two six hour days with a gap in between yeah so it is worth noting that of course by demanding people went into the office uh you didn't really leave much room for people like me who are massive massive night owls Mm. so you know my most productive time of night would be typically 10 o'clock till three in the morning that's you know if you if you asked me to do five hours work and said when would you like to do the five hours work it'd be something like you know nine till two or ten till three in the morning and by you know requiring night owls like me to get into the office at nine o'clock which means you've got to get up at seven thirty or whatever depending on how you know fastidious you are about generally any you know, personal hygiene and so forth uh <laughs> you know uh, you are preventing those people from working at their most pr- productive time
0: yeah i have three quick questions are you up for some quick fire before you yeah yeah I take-
1: absolutely i was like always like a nice quick fire
0: around excellent all right surveillance technology from keystroke monitoring it's an all-time um high around the world to what degree do you agree with the statement that covid has shown us one thing companies don't trust their employees um well
1: is it that to be absolutely honest i've asked this question and we will go back to the shareholder value movement which is that employees employers don't really care about their employees except at a narrow transactional level they don't care about anything long term about their employees those employees have noticed yeah so people have always said oh gen z they know they hardly stay anywhere for more than a year but when i joined Ogilvy in the 1980s okay you know i was paid eight and a half thousand pounds a year i mean it was you know pittance but they'd send me on training courses which cost like 1500 quid and I did infer from that okay they are kind of investing in my long-term future as though there is an intrinsic two-way relationship between um, employer and employee it isn't merely a series of standalone transactions and I think employment has basically become a series of standalone in- transactions Um, and it's hardly surprising that employee behaviour has become less trustworthy and committed if the employer is not really seen as being committed to them. Mm -mm. And I make that point about, you know, I said freedom of movement, you've got offshoring, and then you've got technology. All of those three things hit a particular class of worker, I think.
0: Mm.
1: Okay. And effectively, effectively, the assumption was in London, effectively, staff are infinitely replaceable.
0: Yes, that's not true for a lot of people now. I think they found that no, out. No,
1: there's a huge value. There's a hu- I mean, there's a wonderful phrase, which is if you look at an organisation, um, a third of the people have only just joined so they haven't got a clue what they're doing. A third of the people are planning to leave so they don't care what they're doing. And it's the third of the people in the middle who do all the work. Now, obviously, that's a slight exaggeration, but having longevity in staff is inordinately valuable because yeah. there are a whole load of tacit skills which you can't really codify or define in advance that long term employees understand, particularly in terms of interpersonal relationships, um, that long term employees come to understand a huge amount of tacit knowledge, uh, which is denied to the
0: person who's just joined. Okay, second quick fire. (laughs) He laughs. Uh, P&O, BrewDog, Weatherspoons, EasyJet, DPD, Kroger, Marriott International, lots of businesses have made some big, quote-unquote, finger wiggles choices during the pandemic that are coming back to bite them afterwards. What's your advice for leaders um, who are rallying troops, steering big ships, sometimes into choppy waters at the moment?
1: It's pretty difficult if the survival of the company is at stake um it, you know that you know you get to a point where where there is no discretionary ability uh, to uh, change employees better i do think there is something here where i don't think consumers are as stingy as businesses think they are i think the focus on efficiency okay has actually been detrimental in many ways to brand value and to brand experience yeah I don't think people like things that are efficient. I mean I'll go as far as that. The things that actually convey meaning that we really notice are the things that happen that aren't st- are, you know that aren't strictly necessary. You know it's the uh you know the discretionary act of I had a perfect example of it today of um i turned up at the my station to catch one of the things we ought to mention by the way is flexible working doesn't just mean you come in some days you don't come in some days one very good application of flexible working is you do a lot of zoom calls and emails in the morning at eleven thirty, you travel in on an off-peak very cheap uh with your rail card um uh empty train on which you can work because the trains empty then you go into the office and then maybe you go home a bit later okay it isn't just a question of being a twat you know Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday yeah okay um, but as I turned up at the station I was a bit late and the guy was closing up the coffee shop okay and um, to be honest he might do this to everybody deliberately I don't know but I just shuffled around the back and I said oh you're, you're shut to you and he said well since it's you I'll make you a flat white you see now, that's probably made him about 50 quid, because for the next 50 occasions I visit the railway station, I will now feel obliged to buy a bloody coffee. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, we disproportionately value the things that businesses do that, at some extent, the things that finance directors tend to hate. And I think i think this focus on sort of defining what it is you do and delivering it efficiently misses a fundamental point about human psychology which is we kind of you know we kind of value the things that you do that you don't have to do and therefore i think you know i think we've created something which is um uh you know this this idea that um uh uh um that that consumers will basically defect if you put prices up i think there are ways in which you can put prices up pay people better and actually um uh, uh and make the equation work but i don't think i don't think people versed in sort of business school economics are actually looking to do that
0: no i don't either i think that's a really interesting argument to have economically speaking at the moment certainly that's for sure I'm going to yeah. ask you one um, last question before we do Desert Island Tweets, and I'm asking everyone on the season: What's your take on the metaverse and the world of work? Are we all going to be uh, avatars? Okay, okay,
1: okay. Uh, let, let's just metaverse—very interesting. Keep it watching. on I mean, it, absolutely fine. Very interesting. Might be, might be total bullshit, by the way. Might be absolute and total bollocks. Okay, but let's. There's a tendency for futurologists to always talk about things which are five years out. Yeah. OK, and my argument is, look, we've got a whole load of technologies like, for example, video conferencing, OK, uh, which we have to wrestle with right now. There is the potential yeah. to completely reinvent the international advertising agency network around this technology and completely change our processes to make better use of the fact that co location is no longer required. OK, yeah. I think we should be spending far more time talking about that. And talking about interesting things like, you know, Google's two weeks of work from anywhere, where with your line manager's permission, you can work anywhere in the world for two weeks. You know, um, we should be talking about things that we can do now that are absolutely pressing rather than forever getting too messed about some ludicrous thing that's a few years out. You know, and I, I do find marketing unbelievably faddish in that, you know, once something like the metaverse or NFTs just becomes kind of the latest award-winning thing, then the extent to which people will sort of jump at that. By the way, we should explore them. It's very healthy to explore them. You know, it was quite perfectly healthy to explore drone delivery, okay? But don't, don't bet the farm on that stuff. Let's focus on, because actually most technology is quite old at the point when it really delivers its economic value.
0: Yeah.
1: Electrification really took 50 years, 60 years before it actually, you know, became really, really valuable in terms of uh, manufacturing productivity um, but rather than just being useful.
0: No, I think and there's a great, great paper it, by too. Noah
1: Smith called Distributed Service Sector Productivity paper by Noah Smith, and he predicts a kind of zoom boom that could come if businesses actually reinvent the way they work and the way in which reporting lines work and the way in which uh, work is processed around the idea that co-location is no longer required interesting okay right to... and, and around, and around okay. the fact by the way let um, you know I, I spend a lot of time exploring YouTube you know I think specialist broadcast TV um, has enormous potential. Oh, you know, um. So rather than an agency selling one person for you know a hundred pounds an hour, why don't you sell it? You know, why uh, why don't you invite people to pay ten pounds an hour but have a thousand of them? <laughs> okay, you know, the Beatles didn't get rich because they worked out how to charge higher ticket prices at the Cavern Club. The Beatles got rich because they made records and played Candlestick Park. I like that.
0: Bit before my time, but I, I've I've heard the. Stories.
1: Oh, sorry, yeah, no, no, no. That's all I, right. I, I, I'm not into your bloop de bloop music, you know, ah. yeah, you know, Suze. weird druggy music. Oh, you Oh, know.
0: Suze was hoping that she's got another client there. No worries. Right, <laughs> so, um, I'm going to pull it to you. No, I, lo-
1: I love you. I loved your I loved your lo fi. No, I was talking oh. about your weird, you know, your weird stuff where you all go into some park somewhere, you know, that oh. that stuff. I'm not, not into that. No,
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, no. Well, I, not, uh, Suze's lo fi was
1: fantastic. No, I'm not, I'm certainly not dissing that. I thought it was great.
0: There you go. So you wheeled that one back. I like and
1: that. And Malcolm McLaren, Malcolm McLaren, when I met him once about crikey, would have been about ten years ago now. His two predictions for the future were lo-fi and karaoke. There you go.
0: Hey, that's money in the bank right there. I think. For there sure. you go. Okay, folks, we end as ever with Desert Island Tweets, the part of the mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two uh, that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to The Nest, the bit at the top where all the uh, tweets are, um, you will see one via Nassim Nicholas Taleb, uh, N-N-T-A-L-E-B. That's if you want to follow him on Twitter, if you aren't already. Yeah. Um, actually, IQ tests select suckers for noise who over-detect patterns and falls of randomness. And then there's a thread underneath. Rory, why did you pick this one? Well, there
1: seems work. That there are a few cases where I've changed my mind about something um, more or less in an instant. And the first instance was, by the way, um, Dignity in Dying. And someone from one of these campaigns for, um, you know, it, I, I don't mean, assi- I suppose it could be killed, assisted suicide, but it really is just people who are already suffering from a terminal disease and their ability to end, the li- end their life at a time of their choosing. Okay, and they told me something which was a complete mind changer, which they said that most people who go through all the legal procedures to end their own life end up dying of natural causes anyway. They don't actually go through with it. Now, I would always assumed that once the ink was dry, you know, you flew off to Switzerland and the guy with rimless spectacles and a massive syringe appeared and it was all over. No, 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 he said, no, most people go through the legal procedure and then they end up dying perfectly naturally. And I suddenly realised they don't actually want to end their life. They just want to know that they can. Totally different okay it's not that these people want want this you know this dignity and dying campaign in order to bring their life to a close sooner it's just that they don't want to get trapped in a life they no longer want okay that was a case where i basically changed my mind about something very rapidly because i suddenly understood it in a new context and mm. the seams work on iq is really really interesting because we don't um We'd always assumed that there was this correlation between IQ and life outcomes. And indeed, there is. OK, um, you know, if you look at general success in life, it correlates very well with IQ. But most of the correlation is driven by the fact that, the, that people with very low IQs have generally very poor life outcomes. You know, you're very unlikely to become significantly rich if you've got an IQ in the range of the 80s. Now, my great aunt. Um, was actually involved in early IQ testing, both in the US. He was an anthropologist working in both the United States and the UK.
0: And
1: the original purpose of IQ testing was simply to identify people who wouldn't be able to cope with the school system, to give them differential treatment and, and help and assistance. It wasn't intended as, you know, someone with an IQ of 130 is cleverer than someone with an IQ of 120, Okay. Yeah. And, and Nasim's point is nearly all the correlation disappears once you get to about 100. OK.
0: Yeah.
1: And the interesting thing there that suddenly occurred to me is there are a lot of things which correlate asymmetrically. So the example would be you could if you were using someone's soccer playing ability to predict how good they'd be at cricket. OK, you could do that at the negative end, couldn't you? You could say someone who's absolutely rubbish at soccer is highly unlikely to be good at cricket.
0: Mm.
1: You know, you might just basically lack basic hand-eye coordination or whatever it may be. But you can't say the opposite when using a proxy measure like that. You can't say someone who's a brilliant soccer player is also going to be a brilliant cricketer. Not the same thing in terms of physique and everything else. And so Nassim's argument is that actually an awful lot of this stuff is a statistical artifact. And that IQ tests basically um IQ as a proxy for what you might call practical real-life intelligence doesn't really deliver anything of any value at the at the at the right hand side of the range. Mm
0: i i didn't now, know too i, I, much mean, I might
1: i might argue by the way i might push back with the seam and say you know if you want they're probably fields like high energy physics where you're not going to make much of an impact but then even then i mean richard Feynman claimed that he'd measured his iq and it was like 117 or something i mean you know who knows david Ogilvy claims i think his iq was 95 <laughs> um and i think kylie minogue supposedly said it was 95 now kylie i don't you know you know she's obviously a genius so it's ridiculous okay um i didn't know she knew david (laughs) i know exactly but but the interesting there is an interesting thing in that we are probably with our education system selecting for elevating and putting in positions of power uh people with um a highly unrepresentative form of intelligence or conceivably the wrong kind of intelligence which is people who in a complex world are over prone to spot patterns and to resist ambiguity in a sense yeah you know people who have an absolute love for sort of uh, you know um you know binary um classifications or you know very very you know oversimplified narratives Which arguably, you know, serves you really, really well in many academic disciplines, but is actually a
0: catastrophe
1: in real life.
0: I think you've just described my life into a tea there, Rory. (laughs) okay uh, i will draw it to a close there thank you for that um this is a wrap on episode six of season four my thanks to rory sutherland uh, for help uh, making the future of agencies a lot clearer and and work uh, lots to think about for sure make sure you get your tickets to nudge stock and uh, if you go to nudgestock.com uh, sorry.co.uk you'll be able to get a ticket for free um any final words of advice for listeners rory uh,
1: yeah um Uh, Another just interesting kind of thing that changed my mind on everything is a series of papers which say that that we're completely misdirected in our obsession with equality of opportunity. And we should be looking for plurality and diversity of opportunity, not equality, because the very idea of equality of opportunity brings with it the assumption of a ranked linear status hierarchy.
0: Oh, I like that.
1: I like that too. Yeah that actually in that wonderful sort of seemingly meritocratic quest for equality of opportunity it contains within it effectively um uh, the assumption that that effectively um uh, you know society should be ranked in a kind of ladder sequence
0: mm. oh yeah I'm going to replay that and I'm going to think about that and find about more. Yeah, I mean, I I, I
1: still think about it quite a bit from time to time. And occasionally I forget what it means and I have to kind of uh, reboot my brain into understanding it again. But I think it's a really, really important point.
0: Yeah. Okay. up next on Mouthwash is Dr. Tessa White, TikTok's job doctor. Uh, If you haven't seen her, check her out on TikTok. Over half a million people, young and old, follow her. And she is changing how people negotiate, resign, get raises and manage up and worn out multi-generational teams. Um, we're going to be talking about a lot to do with things like managing up, managing out, the great resignation, and a lot more besides. So I urge you to tune in for that. It's next Tuesday for people uh, who are listening uh, live, and it will be on the podcast in a month or two. But never miss a moment if you head over to mouthwash.norby.live, and you'll get a text so you never miss a minute of any mouthwash as well. There's also all the information you ever want if you go to mouthwashshow.com. Um, a big shout out to, to Workplace of Meta for sponsoring the show. The easy-to-use features make work feel more. Familiar as well as helping everyone work together in new ways. Find out more by simply going over to workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human, and you will discover more. Um, I am a firm believer that uh, you do not remember the days, you remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I am Paul Armstrong. This is Mouthwash. Listen in again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season 4 of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy-to-use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.